Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. It is good to have you on the show. I barely made it back home last night. I was in Montreal, and if you've been following the news, which I, I hope you do, you'll know there was a, a big ice storm in Montreal, and I was uh, trying to get just from downtown to the airport, which is, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes away, and the taxi I was in, the driver had to scrape the mirrors off three times in that 15 minutes because they were just getting ice stuck to them so much so that he couldn't see uh, behind. And then you get to the airport and every flight is canceled except for, thankfully, this was like the one time air travel has gone in my direction. The one flight I needed uh, to get out of Montreal was the one that I actually got. So I, I made it home last night. I didn't have to stay in some airport hotel. And I, uh, I live to tell the tale and I am doing exactly that today as we wrap things up for an abbreviated week on the eve of Good Friday and the Easter weekend. And if you are one of our Jewish viewers or listeners, I, I wish you a very blessed uh, Pesach, I believe is the pronunciation, or just Passover, and that way I can't butcher it. And if you are a Christian like I am, I, I wish you a happy Easter. I think Ramadan is afoot as well. Uh, so all of you, uh, whatever you are doing this weekend, or if you're an atheist, just have a great long weekend, uh, thanks to the rest of us. Uh, so I want to talk about this ridiculous story, which has stuck with me for several days, probably disproportionately. Uh, you may remember we had uh, Sylvain Charlebois on the program uh, last week, and we were talking about inflation, about grocery store prices, about all that jazz. And Sylvain Charlebois had done this study through his office in Dalhousie University on Canadian distrust in grocery store chains. Now, one of the reasons for this, I think, is that you have Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, uh, going on a crusade against grocery stores and what he says are grocery store profits. He thinks grocery stores are just making so much money off the backs of Canadians. There was uh, one tweet of his where he was saying, he's doing the Trump thing. He says... Every cent of greedy Galen's 55% raise deserves to be taxed. So uh, he's now doing the nicknames like Lion Ted or Crooked Hillary. Uh, from Jugmeet Singh, you get uh, Greedy Galen. That's the name. And the thing about uh, Greedy Galen's 55% raise is that it deserves to be taxed, every cent of it. So uh, if you get a raise and the government takes 100% of the raise, you really didn't get a raise at all. So I think what uh, Jagmeet Singh is saying is that you need to have a permanent salary cap uh, that the NDP decides where to draw the line on. But uh, nevertheless, grocery store profits are a thing. When people are uh, skimping and saving in other ways, uh, grocery stores are are still making money. They're still making money throughout the inflationary crisis. And it's quite fascinating to me, though, that there is a subset of Canadians that somehow thinks government is the answer to this. So this is the thing that I plucked out of the Dalhousie Grocer Distrust Survey. Uh, they find, if you look at the report here, that 4.5%, so not a huge number, 4.5% of Canadians believe the government should create a crown corporation and start its own grocery store chain. A 4.5% share of Canadians. So one in 20, again, not huge, but 
more than you would hope are just insane. One in 20 Canadians roughly saying they want a government-run grocery store. Now, I thought of this for a couple of moments and determined that there was only one possible name for it, which would be Liblaws. And at Liblaws, which would be the Canadian government-run grocery store, it would be designed, in my view, like the passport office. So all of the efficiency and capability and effectiveness that we have at Passport Canada, uh, which is a government-run retail-like environment, we could now bring into Liblaws. And you know, just look at what the government is doing with Bill C-11 right now. You know that this would be just an ode to mediocrity. It would be the CanCon equivalent of groceries, where you walk in and you say, oh, wow, you know, I would love to get that. Uh, what's that Mexican salsa that I had when I was on vacation in Mexico? And you go down the salsa aisle, and there is no salsa there is just a Swiss chalet sauce packets and you go to the coffee aisle and you say, I'd love to get some of that, uh, you know, imported blend that they serve at my neighborhood coffee shop. And instead it is just all Tim Hortons all the time. Uh, you want to get some fruit. Well, oranges are out of season. So you have to instead dine out on Saskatoon berries and Leamington tomatoes because tomatoes are technically a fruit. So that's all you get in the fruit aisle now. And as you're shopping through Liblaws, Tragically Hip is just blaring overhead uh, on repeat the same three songs because that's what Canadian content does it means there are no songs there's no selection and you can only just eat whatever the government wants you to eat this is my dystopian nightmare of grocery shopping because grocery stores, if you're a foodie like me, are your portal to the world in a way. You can go and you can try all these different things and broaden your horizons and you can go sometimes to the really weird, obscure sections of the grocery store or go to the international aisle. And just a Canadian government-run grocery store strikes me as one of the worst things that the government of Canada could ever do. And you would end up in a situation in which you go in and the shelf are empty uh, because the bureaucrat was on his seven-week vacation and forgot to actually order the food to put on the shelves. Uh, and you again, you also have to have uh, affirmative action hires uh, in all of the uh, cashiers. So it's actually, when you go to the cash, it's a drag show. Uh, and when they're on intermission, they ring through your groceries. So uh, this is how I imagine it. So let me know in the comments what you think shopping at the government-run Liblaw store is going to be like. In fact, if we're going to go down the way here, uh, probably no meat products. So the protein section, when you go to the butcher, uh, you'll say, actually, could you, you know, trim a little bit of the back half of that cricket for me? I, I only want the half. Or, hey, I've got families coming over. Do you have any of the large crickets? So uh, you get crickets every way you want at Liblaws. <laughs> and, uh, and Galen Weston doesn't make a penny off of it. It all goes to the NDP campaign coffers. So they might someday have enough money to call an election and run a campaign instead of having to prop up this government they say is so terrible. But not terrible enough to pull the plug on it. All right. I've wasted like 10 minutes talking about a grocery store that doesn't exist and that only 4.5% of Canadians want. But if any of those 4.5% of you are listening in, what part of that sounds enjoyable? Like what part of that sounds like a good thing? Or if government is even capable of doing it? Again, a government that cannot deliver you your passport is not a government that can do the complex sourcing that is required from all around the world 
world to run a grocery store chain. 4.5% of Canadians want this. That, that is like the Green Party, although I don't know if it's the Green Party, because the Green Party actually has their uh, desired grocery store. Whole Foods, I, I think it's called. So anyway, let's move on to things that are... <laughs> hopefully less insane than that idea. I, I do want to talk about this one uh, very important dimension to this inflation story because uh, Stephen Gilbo, who is, again, he, he's kind of like Jugmeet Singh in the sense that you never want to assume that he's intelligent uh, because I feel you're probably going to be off track if you do that. But I think he's very shrewd and he, he knows what he's doing a lot of the time. And I think this time he didn't. He, he sort of went even too far for the liberals who I presume told him to delete this tweet of his. Uh, he posted the following, inflation can be tough on Canadians. But we can't neglect the climate crisis. Future generations will bear the cost of inaction. The context of this is that he was uh, retweeting something from uh, Generation Squeeze that says the prospect of paying for our pollution can feel like there is more than one hand in our pocket reaching for a wallet that is always running on empty, but we can't solve our wallet problems by neglecting our climate problems. So he's agreeing and saying, uh, yeah, inflation is tough, but you know what? Screw you because climate change is more important. So what he's saying there is that if you're a Canadian who now has to pay a 30% increase in the carbon tax as of April 1st, you are supposed to just shut up because this is fighting climate change. And how dare you be such a climate criminal because you don't like that you have to pay more for your cauliflower, uh, you absolute climate criminal. This is like the scorn of Greta Thunberg raining down upon you through Stephen Gilbo's Twitter account. How dare you care about inflation? Because for Canadians who cannot afford groceries, they don't have the luxury of saying, you know, I really want to make sure that the sea levels in the Maldives are uh, no higher than they need to be. That, that's, that's a luxury calculation for people. That, that most Canadians who are hurting, who are within $200 a month, any given month, of having to go into debt or increase their debt, uh, they don't actually care right now about the shorelines in Tuvalu if there is even a connection between the price of groceries uh, thanks to a carbon tax and these things, which is uh, dubious at best. But it just shows the utter disconnect between the people that want to start writing out all of these penalties, these punishments for us living our lives, while not being the ones that have to deal with the consequences. So absolutely shame on St Stephen Gilbo for being so utterly callous us to think that Canadians should care less about inflation, which is putting them into debt and probably bankruptcy, than about your little save the world Greenpeace pet project, the kind that got you arrested. I mean, he's literally a climate criminal because uh, Stephen Gilbo has been criminally charged for his climate activism. So actually, yeah, he's the climate criminal, I think, by definition there. And I again, I, it's not to say I think, you know, he's not been prepared to move beyond that and uh, own up to that chapter of his life, fine. But right now, instead of just making a big stink and making a scene and yelling at people and holding up the sign, he's actually the guy in charge charge. He is actually the guy in charge. How that happened is basically because we are not a serious country. And uh, you can tell we're not a serious country because of what passes for policy here. So we spoke a couple of weeks ago, and I actually asked uh, Premier Alberta, uh, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith about this, the Calgary bylaw that effectively bans 
protesting drag shows. That's that's the bylaw. They've worded it in this convoluted way where they talk about, oh, anything that goes up against an equity-seeking group, you can't do. But, but basically, they're saying if you protest a drag queen story time at a library or a public venue or whatever the case is, uh, it will be illegal under Calgary's municipal bylaws. The Ontario NDP are taking the Calgary bylaw model and trying to bring it to a province-wide context. Here was uh, Kristen Wong Tam and a drag queen explaining why we need to ban protests. Firstly, it enables the Attorney General to create a 2S LGBTQI plus community safety zone to prohibit within 100 meters of the property any homophobic, transphobic act of intimidation, threat, offensive threats, offensive remarks, protest, disturbance, and distribution of hate propaganda within the meaning of the uh, criminal code. It also comes with it a penalty of $25,000 if prosecuted successfully. We will not let fear win. A world without trans people has never existed. A world without drag has never existed, and it never will. Queer people have always been here amongst us. They are our co-workers, they are our brothers, our sisters, they're our mothers, our fathers, they're our families. Drag is art, drag is culture, drag is educational, drag is creative, drag is comedy, but drag is not a crime. My name is Scarlett Bobo and thank you so much for your time. So I would agree that drag is not a crime, but neither is protesting drag or protesting anything. This seeks to effectively criminalize it. I mean, when you're talking about a $25,000 fine, it's not under criminal law, but they're trying to make illegal the idea of protesting something that you may take issue with. And again, you know, I, I have actually never cared about the drag queen culture culture war that's going on. I, I don't really care. I have never been to a drag show. I've never knowingly met a drag queen. It's not uh, something I partake in on the weekends, although everyone needs a hobby. I, I don't actually care. I, I do not care at all. The only time I started to care was when in recent months in particular, I mean, it's been going on for recent years, uh, people started saying that it, you cannot question any aspect of this, even when it is being done in front of children. Now, I, I hate debates and discussions that come down to what really looks like pearl clutching. People that say, won't someone think of the children when I believe kids are resilient. I, I don't believe you need to sugarcoat kids from every ill in the world. And in fact, when people start talking about, well, I'm fine with it, but I don't want children to see it. Oftentimes, they use that as a bit of a crutch because they themselves are not comfortable with something. And to look at it from the other dimension, a lot of the times pro-life protesters are attacked on the grounds that, well, I don't want my kids seeing that. I don't want my kids seeing uh, the images of aborted fetuses. I don't want my kids seeing your messaging. And, and they use kids as a bit of a crutch there. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that's what's happening here. I'm saying that's why I dislike the idea of saying that children are, are these entities, these beings that need to be bubble wrapped and sugarcoated. So I, I don't think that drag queen story times should be illegal. And I don't think they are illegal. They aren't in any jurisdiction that I'm aware of, except for maybe, I don't know, Sudan or something. Um, so I don't at the same time think that protesting them 
should be. And and Danielle Smith and I had a, a slight disagreement on this point. She said, you know, people have a right to have their events and parents can make their choices and these events should not be disrupted. And I said, well, protests are not disrupting them. Protests are taking place outside to draw attention to these things that the protesters find uncomfortable and find to be age inappropriate. And there are lots of cases of these things where a person is sitting down in a silly outfit with their makeup and hair done, however, and they're reading a story, and I don't have to get it to see that it is not a particularly lewd activity. And then you also see all the clips of the inverse happening, where you cannot separate the sexualization from drag, where it is being done not just around children, but in some cases physically to children. And I have to question why, who wants that? Who actually wants that and, and why? And, and I think that anytime we have discussions like this in a legal context, we're missing the mark that there's a whole area of society in which we should be able to self-govern as free individuals. You should have the right to be a drag queen if you want. I should have the right to go if I want. And I should have the right to stay far away if I want. I think parents should have the right to make choices and other people should have the right to question those choices. If you don't like something, one of the most fundamental rights you have is to dislike it and to raise your concerns and make them known to other people. So when all of a sudden it becomes the role of the state to govern which things you can and can't criticize, which speaking of abortion protests or anti-abortion protests already happens in the province of Ontario. Ontario has some of the most restrictive laws governing where people can protest abortion. You can't actually protest abortion or even counsel alternatives to abortion within a certain radius. I think it's 100 meters of where abortion clinics are located which means the very place you'd want to protest something you are not allowed to go to to protest. So when you allow governments to do this, you're allowing governments to claim a monopoly on right and wrong and start criminalizing dissent and criminalizing opposition and criminalizing the idea of just people disagreeing about something and accepting that that is a normal thing to do in a healthy society. How did drag queens become this thing that went up on a pedestal that no one was allowed to question or criticize, especially when many of them are all too willing to have the discussion. I've seen so many drag queens that have gone and done interviews in which they've defended it, even against people that don't understand it. And again, if you want me to interview a drag queen on the show about this, I would happily do that because I, I do have genuine questions as to where we draw the line between what is sexualizing to children or sexually adjacent and what is just this harmless little thing that you do that's no different than uh, someone putting on a princess costume to read a fairy tale to kids? At what point does it become one thing that you are uncomfortable with if you're one of the, if you're one of the, the people involved in this pastime? So, so again, I, I'm going in different directions on this. I, I find it egregious that we have a political party in Ontario that's entertaining a ban on protesting. And I find it more bizarre. I haven't heard how the progressive conservatives in Ontario are going to go on this. Um, but, you know, there are some members of the PC caucus that I think would show up to the legislature in drag if the media had asked them one critical question just because they thought it was the only way they could get out of it. So I think there are some PC MPPs that I would not be surprised to see voting in favor of this because uh, this is, again, a party that has endorsed some of the most restrictive uh, measures in the COVID era, a party that doesn't really 
care about free speech, either within its caucus or in the province. Uh, so it's entirely possible the PCs will go along with this which will be whatever you think of drag queens, whatever you think of drag queens story hour, whatever you think of any of this would be an affront to freedom of speech. And we need to go back to the first principles here. Why should the government have a right to tell you what you can criticize or what you cannot criticize? They simply shouldn't. And when you see this dynamic, it's important to know just how insane some new Democrat MPs and MLAs and MPPs are, especially in British Columbia. This is in Ontario, but this just came across my radar like, I don't know, 20 minutes before I went on air. A BC new Democrat MLA, who's, I, again, I've never heard of, I don't follow BC politics, but his name is Amon Singh. Uh, has said that, you know what, I don't even think I can tell you what he said without you just hearing it from his own mouth. Take it away. In the wake of an Oscar win for The Whale, a horrifically discriminatory movie that uses fat suits, and don't be mistaken, a fat suit is just blackface in another context, and a storyline to paint the protagonist as grotesque, pitiful, it's well beyond time we talk about fat phobia. We talk about racism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, sexism, but we don't address the systemic oppression that affects people who live in larger bodies. Fat phobia is the implicit and explicit bias that is rooted in a sense of blame and presumed moral failing. Being fat is highly stigmatized in culture. Anti-fatness is intrinsically linked to anti-blackness, racism, classism, misogyny, and many other systems of oppression. <laughs> so... Uh, let me just start off here by uh, giving honorable mention to the American Sign Language interpreter uh, showing everyone what fat is. Uh, because, like, you know, here we have this impassioned speech from an NDP MLA about uh, just how horrible it is that uh, society is so fat phobic. And then you look at the sign language guy going like, I mean, this is how I look generally. So it's not as noticeable when I'm doing it, but the sign language guy, like, you know, doing the ASL for fat as they're like decrying fat phobia was particularly great. So uh, he's actually been canceled now. The, uh, the sign language guy has uh, been fired for a uh, fat phobic hate crime for his uh, accurate usage of the ASL uh, term for, for fat. But uh, here we have an MLA in British Columbia saying that uh, fat phobia is a growing concern, taking aim at the critically acclaimed movie Whale, uh, featuring Brendan Fraser, which won Brendan Fraser an Oscar. And this movie was apparently so fat phobic because it uh, made him out to be grotesque. And just that throwaway line that fat suits, which Brendan Fraser used for the movie, are blackface. Uh, so I should probably take this time to uh, apologize. Um, I, I don't actually look like this. I've just been wearing a, a fat suit for 30-something years, uh, and I realize now this is offensive. So uh, hopefully at some point in the future I can uh, get the fat suit off and I will uh, not be in that horrific, uh, fat-phobic, uh, appropriative attire uh, any longer. It's, uh, it's so terrible. How dare I have done that uh, for so long? Uh, but this whole thing of like trying to add grievances, just add grievances nonstop. Like, like to say that blackface is a pretty bad thing, I think is something that we can all get on board with. Uh, but all of a sudden, you know, oh, but if you uh, would have put on a fat suit, that's also blackface. That's fat face or fat 
fat black black suit. No, fat fat phobia. Fat. It's a. It's it's terrible. How can you do it? It is not something you're allowed to do because uh, wearing a fat suit is the new blackface. Black blackface. See, I can't even. I was trying. I was joking about messing up the words, and then I started to uh, actually uh, do it. So, uh, Brendan Fraser, you have to give back your Oscar. You have to apologize uh, to the fat community. I don't know if there is a fat community. If there is, it's likely those of us gathered around the buffet. Uh, but you have to apologize to the fat community uh, for your horrific appropriation of their identity. Believe it or not. Uh, this is a, an amusing little aside, but it is actually something that people have tried to lobby for inclusion in the Human Rights Code. So they've actually tried to make body size a protected ground against discrimination, which means that if you were to wear a fat suit for some some reason, uh, maybe you wanted to audition for a part in a Brendan Fraser movie, I don't know, you could actually be found to have been breaking the law in the human rights tribunal. So, so a lot of these things that you get MLAs pontificating about, like you can laugh at them and mock them as we're doing now, uh, but there are very real consequences when this sort of narrative gets picked up in law, which is basically what he's uh, trying to do here. You can tell it's the last show of the week because we're just like having fun and we're just like going through everything we can here that we didn't get a chance to get through in the previous days, uh, which brings us to 24 Sussex Drive, which is, I've always said, a rodent-infested crap hole. And I was just talking about politicians, but now it is literally a rodent-infested, derelict building that has had so many dead animals in the walls, no one knows what to do with it. This story came out uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, it has been closed permanently due to rodent and mold issues, according to documents from the National Capital Commission. So this is normally in Ottawa, the official residence of the Prime Minister of Canada. Since Trudeau took office, he's been living in Rideau Cottage just across the street. And there was always this understanding that millions and millions of dollars in renovations were needed at 24 Sussex Drive. It was not inhabitable the way people discuss it. And Trudeau sort of said, okay, I'm not going to move in there. But instead of doing the responsible thing and saying, okay, we're now going to renovate this thing, he has just let it sit there. So all the problems have continued to be problems. He actually had to evict a guy <laughs> to move into Rideau Cottage. I can't remember who it was, uh, but it was like the private secretary of the governor general something who normally lives there that just got like kicked out so Trudeau and his family could live there. And look, this is one of these few areas where I'm technically okay with government spending a little bit of money because like unless we want just the prime minister of the country whomever it is to just have some like crappy apartment overlooking spark street which you know is probably the way they do it in most european countries i think generally speaking a place that you can do business in a place that you can live in that is somewhat presentable is probably at a minimum, something we could all get on board with giving the Prime Minister of the country. If even the Speaker of the House has a private residence, the Prime Minister surely could as well. So Trudeau screwed this up because every Prime Minister has screwed it up, by the way, because no one has wanted to vacate the House to do the renovation. So he actually did by not moving in the right thing. But he didn't do the one thing that made that the right thing, which would have been uh, actually doing the renovation. So instead, it's like this weird principled stand of, well, I'm not going to live there. But now it's like, well, no one's going to live there ever again. So uh, like, I don't care if we just tear it down and build something. Maybe we just get to, what are those trailers? The, the flat, are they Airstreams? Not Gulfstreams. 
Gulf streams, air streams. Anyway, uh, maybe we just like park one of those out on the, uh, the lot and the prime minister can uh, stay there. Uh, Sean, my producer is saying let we Trudeau can live in an Airbnb. Um, an Airbnb is an option, uh, but the problem, I've stayed at Airbnbs before and I, I don't actually love it. I mean, I like the one that actually Sean and I were, were staying at, uh, in separate rooms. Don't, uh, don't get any ideas in, in Davos, because we had like this weird, like moose head on the wall, which was just like menacingly overlooking me as I got up early in the morning, uh, to get work done. And we had this like weird, it was like a very like mountainy rustic theme. So, uh, we could actually send Justin Trudeau to the Davos Airbnb we stayed at. I think he'd probably be far more comfortable living in Davos year round. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> we've got to end things there. I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful Easter weekend, a wonderful Passover Seder, whatever it is you are doing tonight and this weekend. I hope you enjoy it unless you are trying to nationalize grocery stores, in which case I, I wish you no luck whatsoever. But uh, we will talk to you all next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.